angel and human being, uh, the divine offspring, the, the giants, which then form the, the spirits of the, uh, the Nephilim. And I'll, I'll quote a passage um, from uh, Enoch. We'll look at this together. Uh, I just wanted to read this to you. Let's see, chapter 15. I just wanted to read this part, uh, so bear with me. Let's see if I can make this bigger in case you'd like to read along. This is uh, from uh, book one of Enoch, first Enoch, or just Enoch, however, it depends. But uh, this is for uh, 15 and the first four verses in 16. I'm going to give you some context here. <coughs> and he answered and said to me, um, an angel presumably to Enoch here, according to this. Um, and he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice, Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach hither and hear my voice, and go say to the watchers of heaven, uh, this would be the angelic beings um, who sinned, go say to the watchers of heaven, or at once uh, stewarded with uh, overseeing the earth, who have sent thee to intercede, sorry for the old English, for them or to pray or minister on their behalf. You should intercede for men and not men for you. So he's saying that the angels are supposed to be uh, carrying messages from humans to God, uh, as is the biblical story, not from um, men aren't supposed to be the ones taking messages from angels to God. So everything's all mismatched here. You should intercede for men and not men for you. Whether have ye left the high, holy, and eternal heaven, and lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, and taken to yourselves wives. This is a, a the Jewish traditional interpretation of Genesis chapter six, verse one through four. Um, uh, angels lying with women uh, and sinning in that way. This is repeated in the New Testament in Jude chapter, uh, excuse me, verse six and seven. This this sin is mentioned again in the New Testament. So this is not just in Enoch. This is in your New Testament as well. Also, this is referenced. Uh, part of this book in Second uh, Peter chapter two verse four, as these angels being in Tartarus, as Peter says. So verse three: Whether you have uh, have ye left the high, holy, and eternal heaven, and lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, and taken to yourselves wives, and done like the children of earth, and begotten giants as your sons, and though uh, you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women. And have begotten children with the blood of flesh as uh, the children of men lusted after flesh and blood uh, as those also do uh, die and perish. Therefore, I have given them wives so that they may impregnate them and beget children by them. That thus nothing might be wanting to them on earth, but you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore, I have not appointed wives for you. For as for the spiritual ones of heaven, and the reason I'm caricaturing this is because Matthew's teaching um, concerning Jesus, he says that uh, that uh, people in the afterlife will be like angels in heaven that neither marry nor are given in marriage. But here we see this caricature with Enoch and with the rest of the New Testament is that there not all of the angels stayed in their proper dwelling. Some of them left their proper dwelling to quote Jude, uh, like these these watchers that sinned. And therefore have not appointed wives for you, for as for the spiritual ones of the heaven, uh, in heaven is their dwelling. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and the flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling, 
Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. Uh, so there it is, the origin of demons. Uh, the uh, mixing of flesh and spirit, angel and human. Um, and this is interesting. It says, they shall be called evil spirits on earth and evil spirits shall they be called um, as for the spirits of heaven and heaven shall be their dwelling but as for the spirits of the earth, which were born upon the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth, and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger, and thirst, and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men, and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. From the days of, uh, this is chapter 16, verse 1, from the days of the slaughter and destruction and death of the giants, from the souls of whose flesh and spirits having gone forth shall destroy without incurring judgment. Um, thus shall they destroy until the day of consummation. I want you to remember that. So basically they're saying that um, they're, when these dead Nephilim, these dead giants, when they die, their spirits will remain on earth. They're a product of uh, this abominable thing of humans and angels mixing. And so uh, humans are to be on earth. God has designated afterlife for them. Likewise, he does for angels. We see this in Second uh, Peter and uh, also in Jesus' teaching of where angels go when they die. Uh, or or uh, like I said, Peter talks about them being locked up after they sin. But as for this, this abominable interbreed, their places on earth where they were created, according to the book of Enoch, uh, to destroy and corrupt the earth and, and cause problems until the day of judgment. So this is all from the book of Enoch. We don't get it anywhere else. And this is important for you to know because your New Testament reflects uh, putting stock in this, in this uh, worldview, in this opinion. And... Uh, if you don't get this from Enoch, there's not really another place you get it, but we see it reflected in the New Testament. Um, shall destroy without incurring judgment, thus shall they destroy until the day of consummation. So evil spirits are given the freedom to roam um, until the, the end of time, until the great judgment in which the age shall be consummated, the end of the age, the last judgment, the great white throne judgment. Over the watchers and the godless, yea, shall be wholly consummated. And now as to the watchers who have sent thee to intercede for them and who have been aforetime in heaven, say to them, you have been in heaven, but all the mysteries had not yet been revealed to you and you knew worthless ones and these in the hardness uh, of your hearts you have made known to the women. Uh, that was part of the Genesis 6 worldview of the Jews that, that these angels helped reveal countless mysteries and uh, knowledges, forbidden secrets and knowledges to the human race. And that's how they progressed in civilization so fast. And that's how they also discovered evil so fast. And so God, according to Enoch, accounted them partially responsible for the amount of wickedness that was widespread on the earth. We see this when the transition from Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, then transitions to verse 5, where it says, you know, Evil was so widespread across the whole earth that all that people thought all the time was evil continually. So that's where this transition is. These, these watchers, these divine beings have passed on information, uh, countless knowledge and, and uh, forbidden information to human beings like how to craft war, how to be seductive, how to um, 
do astronomy, all kinds of things like that, how to create potions, all kinds of stuff like that. You've been in heaven, but all the mysteries had not yet been revealed to you, and you knew worthless ones, and these in the hardness of your hearts you have made known to the women, and through these mysteries, women and men work much evil on the earth, as we just talked about, and I explained. Say to them, therefore, you have no peace. So we'll stop right there. I just wanted to reference that. So see the context here for verse 2, as Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit. That, that's the Jewish worldview here. This unclean spirit is this mixture um, came from the tombs and met him. So like I said, you don't have to believe as I do. You don't have to see it that way. That's totally fine. Uh, this is an essential issue, but this is, to me, very clear in the text. And we'll see it's continually clear in the other New Testament passages. There's a whole lot of this biblical worldview you've got to really dump out uh, if you hold some other view, which is totally fine, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I'm just telling you what I think is here. So verse 3, he says, he lived among the tombs, speaking of this, this uh, man. The other thing I wanted to mention about uh, verse 2, as I did say, there was two things. The other is that in the other uh, synoptic gospel is that there's actually two men recorded, I believe, in the uh, synoptic uh, gospel of Matthew. And Luke only records one demoniac. Uh, Mark here records one demoniac. And Luke records two. But what I want you to notice, there's not a discrepancy in the sense that Mark and Luke only say there's only one demoniac. It just says there's this guy that shows up, first of all. And in um, Matthew or Luke, I can't remember which one. I believe it's Matthew um, that has the, uh, the double demoniac. Um, in that one... It just references two, so it seems like what's going on here is that there was there was two in some way, shape, or form, but this one guy was prominent as far as demonization goes. So he lives among the tombs, kind of strange, and I'll go on to say, no one could bind him anymore, which usually isn't a good sign, not even with a chain. Uh, verse 4, for his hands and feet had often been bound with chains and shackles, but he had torn the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. So this is clearly, um, if we ever do a series on demonology, I'll talk about this, but there's certain things that are, are common to mental illness and, and there's certain things that you just can't explain other than demonic uh, oppression. And so being able to break metal chains and shackles and for groups of people to not be able to subdue you, yeah, that, that's a good mark of demon possession in case you're wondering. Uh, this is in, inhumane. No human can just break shackles and, and metal like this. Maybe uh, for the most uh, strongest men on planet uh, Earth, maybe that's a possibility. But even then, I'm not sure. Uh, but for this man, uh, it seems like it's just no no feet, and he would just break these metal chains. Um, and you got to think they weren't tiny chains uh, if they're trying to subdue him. So this is uh, pretty scary, quite frankly. No one's strong enough to subdue him. Each night and every day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So you have this picture of this uh, crazy man who dwells uh, um, apart from civilization, in, in tombs, right, in caves, if you will, in the mountains, isolated. Uh, he's cast out from the population. And even at times when people have tried to tie him up, 
uh, with metal shackles and chains, uh, he breaks them. And so this is something that uh, someone no one can control and probably someone everyone fears and keeps their safe distance from. Each night and every day, it says, so this was his whole life of just wandering, miserable, cutting himself, excuse me, and uh, just in misery, crying out. I mean, it's just a really miserable, bleak picture. Verse six says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran, so he comes out after him and bowed down before him. And then he cried out with a loud voice, verse seven, leave me alone, Jesus, son of the most high God. I implore you by God, do not torment me. So a couple things, he comes up to bow in reverence. That's not insignificant. Next, he beg, uh, begs Jesus to leave him alone. Um, and he says, I implore you by God. So he's like, he's calling um, God as um, uh, almost like a prayer request. He asks him to, to leave him alone, to not torment him, which I found really interesting. In Matthew, I wanted to point you out to this uh, parallel of this same story. Uh, where it says, they cried out, Son of God, leave us alone. This is the same story. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Again, so um, the demons here are recognizing in the book of Matthew this appointed time in which judgment was to come. We don't find this uh, as clearly uh, in the Old Testament. Another kind of reference to Enoch, um, I think, uh, we do have maybe a reference in Daniel, but it's more of a stretch. It's, it's really a lot more clear in Enoch. Um, but anyways, I just wanted to point that out. They know that there's this appointed time of judgment. Um, like I said, this seems to be well established from Enoch. And then um, they're asking Jesus to not to do anything ahead of its time. They're hoping they have more time uh, before Jesus uh, does what he's going to do by, by tormenting them and casting them into the lake of fire. And so they, they beg him, um, have you come to torment us before the time, right? So uh, that's what they're most concerned about here is that their time has run short, even though it's not the end of the age. Um, so I just want to point you to that since we're in Enoch uh, earlier. So he says, uh, they say, do not torment me for Jesus had said to him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Verse 9, it says, uh, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. This is uh, one of the clear passages we have of multiple demonic possession. Another person that's a very prominent figure in New Testament theology that is possessed by multiple demons is Mary Magdalene, which I believe she had seven, seven demons. Um, and here, uh, we're not told the exact number, we are told that it's multiple demons and we're told that it's legion. Uh, Roman legions could be anywhere from say 6,000 uh, down to maybe 3,000 uh, soldiers. So we get this picture while we're not told with the definitive detail that there is hordes and hordes of demons living inside of this, this poor, poor man. Uh, we're not told how he got all these demons. We're not told the reasons behind this. We're not told if part of it was uh, his fault or, or, or we're not given any of that information, uh, which would be helpful, but we're not. We're just told this story of this, this severely uh, oppressed man uh, who has possibly thousands of demons living inside of him, which would explain the 
supernatural, superhero-like strength and the complete misery, uh, isolation, and torment that he was in. And so the demons respond by saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And it says he begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the region. So they asked Jesus to keep him there in that area, uh, which had been around the Decapolis, these 10 towns. And so um, it says there on a hillside, verse 11, a great herd of pigs was feeding. So they begged Jesus that they know he's going to cast them out and he's already told them to come out of him. And so now the negotiation has moved to okay, you're not going to torment us. Okay, you're going to make us leave. Well, at least let us stay around in the area. And so um, it seems like maybe he granted their request here. That's what I'm, I'm tending to lean towards. And um, it says that uh, on this hillside, it's almost you can picture it. He's telling this man, and he sees this herd of pigs, but uh, they're feeding. And it says, and the demonic spirits begged him, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So they're, they're having to leave, but they're still kind of negotiating. Um, please send us to the pigs. Uh, Jesus gave them uh, permission. And so the unclean spirits came out and uh, went into the pigs. Then the herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and about 2,000 were drowned in the lake. <clears throat> so a couple of things. First, we see Jesus grants their request. Their request is to go into pigs. And there's a couple things we can learn from this passage, um, at least. So the first is that Jesus grants the request of this legion of demons. The second thing that we see here is that uh, after Jesus gives him, uh, excuse me, the legion permission uh, the unclean spirits are looking for, and I would just point you back to Enoch, they're looking for a body to inhabit. Um, angels are, are spirit beings that can manifest physically in form, whereas human beings are always uh, in form unless we die until we're in the intermediate state before the resurrection. Uh, but as far as the demonic spirits, they are, are spirit beings that that long to be in a home of a body. That's what they desire. That's what the New Testament teaches. Matter of fact, if a demon is cast out, Jesus tells us, and it comes back after it's been wandering around miserably and it finds this place or this person clean and swept but empty, it invites seven others worse than him to enter in. So we know that demons wander. We know that they long for a body to indwell. And we know that, uh, that uh, that's, that's where they want to be. And so that's why they asked to go into these pigs. Um, it seems almost like a retreat. This is a challenging passage because they asked to go in the pigs. And then as soon as they get to the pigs, they run off the cliff and they all kill themselves. Um, so it seems like uh, they were allowed to immediately go into these pigs and then uh, maybe are set loose upon that region. Uh, maybe... I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, um, but that's what we're told that Jesus permits them to do as they ask, which is to go into these pigs. And then as soon as they're in these pigs, they, they go off um, and kill themselves uh, and the pigs with them. So the second thing I want you to notice, uh, it says there's about 2000 pigs here. 
uh, drown in the lake. Uh, so Mark gives us some specific information. Um, so that's at least 2,000 demons. Uh, I would blend to believe uh, 2,000 uh, pigs. If you think at least one demon per pig, um, possibly who's to say there wasn't multiple demons per pig? I don't know. But it seems like there's at least 2,000 demons. That is insane. This is just such an insane, crazy story. Uh, like I said, the other multiple possession story I can think of is Mary Magdalene with seven demons, but seems to be no limit as to how many demons can be present within uh, one person. And so uh, this is just a crazy, crazy story. So there's 2,000 pigs that, that are all killed and drowned in the lake. So the other thing I want you to notice here, not just the volume of demons, uh, not just the uh, interaction that goes on between Jesus and the demons that we can learn theologically from, but also what I want you to see is the value of a human being. A Jesus here, maybe contrary to, uh, forgive me, my vegans um, or, or my animal lovers, a Jesus values a single human person at least above and beyond 2,000 pigs, which is not insignificant. And so not to say that uh, treatment of animals isn't important to God or that um, it's not valuable to him, but uh, we do see clearly that human beings, as is taught throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis uh, in the mandate in the beginning all the way through uh, the entire New Testament, is that uh, humans are given this authority over all created things, and they are prized the crown of creation, the apple of God's eye. And so they are eminently more valuable and precious than even a thousand or two thousand pigs. And so I just wanted to mention that sometimes in our, our worship of the world, our worship of trees, our worship of animals, uh, we can get this weird idea that, that uh, we're equal to animals as is taught from the evolutionary worldview. And the Bible is completely contrary to that idea uh, from, from cover to cover. And so animals are meant to be cherished, to be well taken care of, to never be mistreated, but they're not more valuable than human beings. And so that's the clear teaching of the text. And we see this Jesus really affirming this and his just nonchalant attitude to cast all these demons into pigs and have them all killed. Uh, he would do that sooner than he would neglect this one man's uh, quality of life. So I think that's important. <coughs> and to as well defeat demons uh, as he wages this spiritual warfare, which is not insignificant either. So verse 14, we're told in chapter five of Mark, says, now the herdsmen ran off. So you can imagine they're all watching this as they're tending to their, their pigs. And of course we can uh, assume they're all Gentiles because this is a herd of pigs. Now the herdsmen ran off and spread the news in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed or demonized man's probably a better translation, uh, sitting there uh, clothed and in his right mind, the one who had the legion and they were afraid. So as soon as the herdsmen see all, all of their, their way of life, their living, uh, go kill itself in the Sea of Galilee, they take off to spread the news to the whole town. As soon as the whole town is showing up to come and see what in the world has just happened, as Jesus and his disciples are with the crazy guy, and they're, all their pigs are dead, they find that the man is clothed, which seems like he'd been running around naked, um, and he's in his right mind. He's no longer possessed. He's no longer uh, demonized. He's no longer uh, under the power of evil spirits. He can think in his own mind, 
which is radically different from his everyday life. The one who had the legion, they were afraid. Uh, those who had seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man reported it, and they also told about the pig. So, of course, there were these herdsmen that had witnessed this entire event, and they just are telling everyone this crazy story of how all these pigs died, uh, 2,000 at least. Then they asked Jesus to leave their region. Um, we're not told exactly why, but we can infer, um, one, they may be absolutely terrified of Jesus because this one man that they've, they've physically and personally uh, tried to bound, uh, bind with metal chains and shackles uh, that they could not subdue, they now see that Jesus, uh, without even uh, seemingly laying hands on him, uh, without even having to hold him down or anything, uh, liberates this man. So Jesus is seen to be a man of great power, and they could have been very terrified of him, maybe rightly so. Uh, also, he has most likely just done away with their means of living for at least some of the herdsmen. So you can guess that they're very angry with him and they don't want him around. Um, and so um, it, it just tells us that uh, they asked Jesus to leave their region. So he's not welcome. And I think that's an important transition to these next few verses. Verse uh, 18 says, as he was getting into the boat, he's leaving immediately after this episode. The man who had been demon possessed asked if he could go with him. So we see this, uh, what you can better believe is a heartfelt, sincere desire to follow Jesus. You can imagine if you were that man, how much suffering your, your life had been for however long it was, could have been many years uh, of suffering and torment and to be instantly freed from all that. You can imagine the, the uh, compassion and love he would have for his Savior. And uh, while Jesus is being kicked out, um, he's begging to go with him. He wants to be a disciple. And it says in verse 19, but Jesus did not permit him to do so. Instead, he said to him, go to your home and to your people and tell them what the Lord has done for you, um, that he had mercy on you. And so Jesus commissions him as a missionary, quite frankly. Um, he sends him back. He says, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, I want you to stay here because Jesus isn't welcome. But this man is welcome. He's one of them. And they're not trying to kick this man out, although they are trying to kick Jesus out. And so this man can be a witness to the gospel. He can be a witness to the Messiah. He can be a witness to uh, Jesus' saving power. And uh, that's what he tells him to do. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. And so he wants him to be a testimony to the people, a missionary, so that they can too be saved after they uh, hopefully put their faith and trust in Jesus themselves based on his testimony because they all knew who he was and where he had been. And, and then they could come to see uh, what Christ did for him. So it says, uh, verse 20, So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis uh, what Jesus had done for him and all were amazed. So he goes back to the Decapolis or these 10 towns and is telling the story and, and you better believe they know who he is and uh, because they were terrified of him before and now they see him clothed in his right mind and he's just this amazing, amazing testimony of, uh, of a changed life. And uh, it says they're all amazed because how could you not be? Uh, I had the opportunity of actually seeing part of the archeological remains of this site. I just wanted to show you a quick picture. This is Beit Shan. This is one of the 10 towns uh, that would have been where this event took place. 
and I uh, just wanted to show you this picture. This is me standing on uh, kind of a mountaintop overlooking maybe a central uh, road along with uh, back here in this section uh, was almost like a steam room type place and some various things uh, in the city. And uh, this is kind of a closer up of the uh, bathhouse that I mentioned that they would heat up and also a cold water pool that was right beside there back when they were doing some uh, hot and cold water therapy back in the day. And uh, this is just a few more pictures. Just wanted to show that it's a cool little place. Um, that's still pretty well preserved to be as old as it is. Um, so he goes back into these 10 towns and um, is really preaching the gospel. He, he's speaking of what Christ has done for him. So um, verse 21 picks up with this next story. It says, when Jesus had uh, crossed again in a boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him as is customary in Jesus' ministry. And he was by the sea. So he goes back to the other side of the um, uh, Sea of Galilee, and the crowds are there um, swarming him. Verse 22, it says, Then one of the synagogue rulers uh, named Jairus came up, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. So a synagogue ruler, it seems like he could have been a, a type of an elder or someone who helped oversee uh, the synagogue in that area, and he's one of them. And so he sees Jesus, uh, he has a good response. He comes and falls uh, at his feet. Uh, so this is a, a good sign of faith and a good response to Jesus showing up. And it says, he asked him urgently, verse 23, my little daughter is near death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and live. So he has a daughter we find out that is in critical condition and he is begging him and has faith that Jesus can can heal her. He says, lay, lay your hands so that she can be healed. He, he has faith in Jesus that he can do uh, what he's been doing, and there's not unbelief. So this is a good sign. Verse 24, it says, Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. As we noted earlier uh, in these previous chapters, preceding chapters of Mark, people want to touch Jesus. Uh, when they touch him, power comes out. When they touch in faith, and so uh, people swarm around him. They crowd around him. He has to be cognizant of this throughout his ministry, often preaching from the boat while people wait on the shore so that he can preach the gospel, which is his primary task, uh, without being uh, interrupted with people grabbing and, and pressing in all over him. And so as he's walking within the town, he does not have the safety of his boat. He is subject to the crowd. So people are all over him, driving him crazy, I'm sure, and the disciples as well, who are probably trying to act like bodyguards to protect them, if I had to guess. Verse 25, it says, Now a woman was there who had been suffering from a hemorrhage or continual bleeding for 12 years. She had endured a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So as Jesus lands on the shore and this man comes up and he's going to this man's daughter's house to heal his daughter, uh, we're told the story of a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years straight. Um, and it says that she endured a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. So we get some backstory during these 12 years, she's spent all the money she has trying all kinds of various treatments and procedures to fix this. Um, 
where it says she endured a great deal under the care of many doctors. So you can imagine they've tried different procedures or surgeries, they've tried different treatments, and it's not been without her having to pay, and she's out of money, and matter of fact, she's not gotten better from all the doctor's treatments, she's gotten worse because the doctors can't help her. And so this woman is desperate, a desperate woman, um, a woman who has no more money left and whose health is continuing to deteriorate. Verse 27 says that when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she kept saying, uh, quote, if only I touch his clothes, I will be healed. So this woman has a deep faith. She has a deep need and deep suffering. And she has this faith that if she can only touch his clothes, if she can just grab his tassel or, or grab uh, his garments, that, uh, that'll be enough to heal her because Jesus is so powerful. And it says that in verse 29, at once the bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So she, she gets a hold of his clothes and uh, as the crowd's pressing in, she's one of these hands that can uh, grab his clothes, his garments. And uh, the bleeding stops. She feels the healing take place in her body. And um, she's healed in a moment. Jesus doesn't have to say anything, to, doesn't have to do anything. She just grabs out, reaches out to him in faith. It says in verse 30, Jesus knew at once that the power had gone out of him. Um, that's just a funny, funny verse. It, Jesus is just trying to push his way through the crowd and, and he feels as one person with a deep need grabs hold of him, the power goes out to heal her. It says he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? He's trying to figure out what's just taken place, uh, trying to figure out who had grabbed his clothes and who had just been healed. Um, because obviously it was significant enough of a disease and done in faith that he felt power go out um, it says, this, uh, verse 31, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you and you say, who touched me? They're, they're basically um, frustrated with Jesus saying, Jesus, people are dogpiling you basically right now in the middle of the streets. We're probably trying to protect you is what's going on. And he's like, why are you asking who touched you? Everyone's touching you right now. Just to paraphrase a little context. So they're like, you know, <laughs> You see the crowd pressing against you and you say, who touched me? Uh, it's just funny. Verse 32, but he looked around to see who had done it. Um, then the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the truth. So this woman in response to her healing uh, comes down and um, falls down before him. Maybe she dropped to her knees or is prostrate in some kind of worship or praise. And, um, and she tells her story. She, um, she tells him the whole truth. She, she tells him her experience. She tells him what, uh, what he had just done for her. And uh, it says in verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And so we see as various parts in the New Testament that faith is an important component to healing. Not to say that whenever we have faith, we'll be healed or that if we don't have, um, or that if we're not healed, it's a sign that we don't have faith. Not to say that, but we do see that in certain parts of towns or places where people are unrepentant, they're unbelieving, they're, they're without faith, 
Jesus is clear not to do many miracles or to heal many people. And likewise, we see when people approach Jesus in faith during his ministry on the earth, he responds in like manner to the amount of faith that they have. And so uh, Jesus, uh, people reap what they sow in regards to their faith in Christ. So he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He, she came to him in faith and she received that reward. The same is true for us. If we come to Jesus in faith, uh, he gives us that reward, uh, that rebirth, that new life that he can offer us uh, today. So he tells her to go in peace and uh, to be healed of her disease. Verse 35, it says, um, while he was still speaking, so right after he's probably finished maybe a little bit of teaching or dealing with this situation with this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, while he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue ruler's house, the man that had originally approached him that they were on the journey to, saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? So they basically show up um, and they tell them, hey, it's too late. Uh, leave Jesus alone to do his, his ministry. Um, there's no more hope for her. She's dead. Uh, the window of opportunity is gone. Um, it's too late. But Jesus, verse 36, paying no attention to what was said, told the synagogue ruler, do not be afraid, just believe. So you can picture this scene. Jesus is finishing teaching. This, this um, group of people comes to tell uh, the synagogue ruler the bad news. Hey, it's too late. Your daughter has died. And you can almost imagine Jesus immediately turning in him to lock focus and say, no, 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 eyes on me. Just believe. I love it. Do not be afraid, just believe. Verse 37, he did not let anyone follow him. This is interesting. Except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. This is Jesus' inner circle. We see this repeatedly throughout the Gospels. Jesus has uh, the 12, but he has an inner three that, that see more, that get to do more, that get to receive more teaching, and that get to witness certain things that the others don't. Um, so he does not let anyone uh, follow him except Peter, James, and John. Um, so we see some favoritism. <laughs> um, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. Uh, there is no favoritism with God, but we do see that Jesus um, does seem to have favorites in, in a sense that uh, we can almost infer that Peter, James, and John are, are more settled in their heart of who Jesus is and, and their commitment to him. We can almost see that uh, their faith is greater. And so they uh, receive greater blessing within that ministry. So Peter, James, and John are brought into, um, into this next scene. Uh, they're the only ones allowed to follow uh, seemingly into the house. They come to the house of the synagogue where he saw noisy confusion and people weeping and wailing loudly. This young little girl has just died and there is a scene uh, fitting to the event. Verse 39 um, says, When he entered, he said to them, Why are you distressed and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And you can imagine uh, for normal human beings um, the, the confusion with Jesus. Jesus says, Hey, what, what's the big deal? She's asleep. Um, but little do they know, he, he's God in the flesh coming to their house. And it's the biggest day of their life. And they began making fun of him. Notice this verse. Um, God comes to earth and we didn't recognize him as the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53. 
Uh, he, he was not of any form that we would recognize him. He wasn't anything special. He was just a normal looking guy. He knew what, what sickness and ailment was. And we, we regarded him as stricken, cut off by God. Um, but, but he bore our sins and, and our transgressions um, by stripes were healed. Um, I love that prophecy, but they don't recognize him. They actually begin to make fun of him, okay? But he put them all outside. I love it. Kicks everybody out. And he took the child's father and mother and his own companions and went into the room where the child was. So these three, Peter, James, and John, and the parents of the daughter are all brought into this um, room to witness the healing of this little girl. Everyone else in the house, as you can imagine, where many, many people there are all kicked out. Verse 41, then taking the child by the hand, you can imagine her dead, lifeless body, he said to her, Talitha Kolm, uh, I hope I pronounced that right, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. So he begins to grab her by the hand and lift her up and say, little girl, I say to you, get up. This is 42, the girl got up at once and began to walk around. And she was 12 years old. Notice the overlap with the woman who was bleeding for 12 years, but it's different that the mother is separate because the mother's waiting at her house. It wasn't the woman uh, who had been bleeding for 12 years. That was her mother. But there is some, some overlap of 12 and 12. Don't know why. But uh, she was 12 years old. So Jesus lifts her up and, and professes over her uh, to get up at that same time, seemingly, uh, seemingly healing her here. It says they were completely astonished at this. He strictly ordered, verse 43, that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus kicks everyone out. Uh, no one is with faith, seemingly. Jesus takes that small group of faithful people uh, that seemingly did have faith, and he, he allows them to witness this miracle. He heals this little girl, and uh, she's healed and regaining her strength. He then you know, tells them to give her something to eat. And then he tells them in verse 43 that um, no one should know about this. Um, and I think that's interesting because as we've repeatedly stated, Jesus is trying to conceal his identity so that he is not put to death before his time. He has come for a mission uh, to die on behalf of, of uh, the whole world's sins, but, but not before his ministry work is done in the area and not before many miraculous signs and, and miracles and uh, teachings are given. And so Jesus, uh, not wanting to be put to death that same day, uh, he's trying to keep things secret. And so he uh, tells everyone to keep it to themselves. Um, after this crazy miracle of him raising this girl, seemingly back from the dead, uh, which is what took place. And so um, awesome chapter, awesome chapter. Uh, Jesus is the prophesied one who has power over demons and is waging war spiritually. He has power over disease and is healing physical ailments uh, of both young and old, uh, of every type and kind. And so keep this in mind. Um, think on these things. Meditate on these things. Um, think about what we learn with Jesus and his interaction with a demon-possessed man and 2,000 pigs and, and how he values human beings. Um, and see also that uh, Jesus is the great physician of what where doctors can't heal, Jesus can. And uh, while sometimes healing takes place here on earth, or sometimes it'll take place in the resurrection, uh, every 
person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus is ultimately healed, uh, whether in this life or in the next. And so that should give us great hope uh, to trust in him as the great physician. And so I hope this, this chapter has been encouraging to you, challenging to you. Um, if there's anything you have questions about, you didn't understand, or, or you'd like to clarify, please leave me a comment down below in the uh, comment section. I'd love to get to that as I'm able. And I hope you can uh, jump in with us for uh, Mark chapter 6. <laughs>